Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The End Report. In this episode, we'll find out why the Office for Environmental Protection believes that three public bodies may have failed to comply with environmental laws with regard to sewage discharges. We'll be discussing the winds of change affecting renewables policy. Is it onshore in and offshore out? And we'll bring you the latest on the environment-related amendments to the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill. Then, in this episode's deep dive, we'll head over to Europe and find out why a wolf called GW950M is possibly the most wanted predator on the continent. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Jamie Carpenter, and I'm joined by news editor Pippa Neal and reporter Shosha Aidy. To kick off this week's Big Green News section, we're going to return to the topic of the sewage scandal and discuss the latest development in the Office for Environmental Protection's investigation into the regulation of combined sewage overflows by three public bodies, DEFRA, the Environment Agency and Ofwat. This investigation was launched in June last year after the watchdog received a complaint alleging failures to comply with legal duties relating to the monitoring and enforcement of water companies' management of sewage. The OEB has been keeping its cards close to its chest since then, but this week we've had what appears to be a significant announcement with the OEP saying it has identified possible failures to comply with the law by the three bodies. Shosha, can you tell us what potential failures are being identified? Starting with the Environment Agency, and I'm going to give you the OEP's exact wording, potential failures relate to the requirements of urban wastewater legislation and the agency's resulting role in devising guidance, setting permit conditions for CSOs and reviewing and enforcing such conditions. The DEFRA, the potential failures relate to the requirement of the same legislation as well as the water quality legislation and DEFRA's duty to make enforcement orders where sewerage companies fail to comply with their own duties to effectually deal with sewage. For Ofwat, potential failures relate to its interpretation of sewerage undertakers' duties to effectually deal with sewage and Ofwat's duty to make enforcement orders where sewerage undertakers fail to comply with such duties. Okay, well, so that that sounds like quite a lengthy charge sheet. Pippa, what could happen next? So this is part of the OEP's regulatory tools. So as part of the investigation process, the OEP can issue these information notices, which basically sets out the details of any possible failures. Um, And under this notice, the regulators will then have a chance to set out whether they agree with the OEP and also a chance to set out any measures to address the issues. Once the OEP has then received these responses, it will then use this information to determine whether or not there may have been a failure to comply with environmental law. And depending on the outcome, they can either issue a decision notice, proceed to an environmental review in the High Court, or if deemed necessary, they can even call an urgent judicial or statutory review. Okay, thanks Pippa. So so it sounds like, um, although people got quite excited about this news, it was still quite some way for there being a resolution and probably quite some way till we find out whether the OIP has real um, real teeth or not. Shusha, how has um, how DEFRA responded and, and what, what are the regulators saying about this? So DEFRA said that while they don't agree with the OEP's initial interpretations, um, which they said cover points of law spanning over two decades, they said they will continue to work constructively um, on this issue. Offworth and the EA didn't say whether they agreed or not. Um, But they said, we welcome this investigation from the OEP and we share their ambition to drive improvements in water quality. Offwat and the EA didn't say whether they agreed or not, um, but they did welcome the investigation, both of them. um, And they all said that their position is that water companies' performance is not good enough and that they're pushing to cut sewage discharges. Thanks, Shosha. Our second big news story is about onshore wind. 
Last week, the government made some amendments to the National Planning Policy Framework, the MPPF, in order to head off a rebellion in Parliament. A group of Tory MPs had sought to amend the Energy Bill in order to relax the restrictions, but they stood down after the government committed to make some revisions to the framework, which is the National Planning Blueprint for England. As background, there's been a long-standing de facto ban on building onshore wind farms in England. The current rules have allowed local authorities to block new turbines based on just one complaint, and as a result, only 20 new onshore turbines have been granted permission in the last nine years. Pippa, could we start off by looking at the amendments to the framework and what, what they what they do exactly? Yeah, so at the end of last year, the government consulted on these changes to the MPPF um, and they proposed to tweak the wording to state that planning consents for onshore wind is predicated on the planning impact of such development raised by the local community having been satisfactorily addressed rather than fully addressed, which basically allowed this kind of one person to complain and then them to be blocked. Um, And also that the proposals have community support rather than community backing. So it's kind of quite small changes to the wording, but it has potential to have quite a big impact. Um, And in the new NPPF, the government confirmed that the measures proposed in this consultation have been taken forward. Um, The new NPPF also states that wind energy development involving one or more turbines can be permitted through local development orders, neighbourhood development orders and community to build orders. Um, And these orders effectively grant planning consent on specific sites or grant upfront planning permission to specific types of developments. Um, And the new document also includes clearer support for the repowering of existing wind farms. And it includes a paragraph stating that in the case of applications for the repowering and life extension of existing renewable sites, give significant weight to the benefits of utilising an established site and approve the proposal if its impacts are or can be made acceptable. Okay, thanks. So it sounds on the face of it like there's there's some quite a few changes there, but I guess the question really is is what kind of impact are they going to have in in practice? Um, what what are people saying about that, Shosha? People that Enza's spoken to have said the changes don't go far enough. Dr. Rebecca Windermere, an expert on onshore wind planning, said that while local authorities can now allocate areas through different routes busy, under-resourced local planning authorities will struggle to find the resources to do so. This is a problem, she said, as under footnote 54 in the framework, local authorities have to designate the suitable areas for onshore wind before anything can proceed. So that's a significant roadblock. Um, The industry body Renewable UK's head of onshore wind, James Rowbottom, said that the proposed changes don't go far enough. Um, as he said, the planning system is still stacked against onshore wind. It treats it differently to every other energy source or infrastructure project. And he described the changes as a missed opportunity to reinvigorate onshore wind in England after eight years of lost progress. In a related development, last week saw the latest contracts awarded through the government's flagship Contracts of Difference scheme. This is essentially an auction for financial support for renewable schemes. Last week saw a record 95 new projects secure funding, which will in total deliver 3.7 gigawatts of clean energy. So on the face of it, that sounds like good news. But not a single company hoping to build offshore wind farms in UK waters took part in what Labour has described as an energy security disaster. Shosha, can you explain a bit about what happened? Did the economics not stack up for them? Yes, with quite a strong language from from Labour. Um, but according to experts, the conditions... Yeah, they just weren't favourable enough for investors um, and the government were warned ahead of the latest round that this would be the case. So offshore wind bids um, were constrained at £44 per megawatt hour, 
which if you compare that to onshore wind, for example, which cleared at 52 pounds 25 P per megawatt hour and solar, which came in at 47 pounds per megawatt hour, then, you know, that is, um, they've got to come in at quite a low baseline, um, which you can see why that would put off investors. Um, Alon Carmel, who's energy transition expert at PA Consulting, said, challenge for offshore wind is that it has to compete with other technologies like onshore wind and solar, but it is subject to different price restrictions. I think to kind of deflect from this, perhaps, um, as you said, Graham Stewart described the latest round as securing a record number of successful renewable projects. There's actually only two more than last year. I think last year there were 93 allocated. But what is significant is this round, we had three geothermal projects, um, which were allocated in a first for the scheme. And the solar industry were quite pleased to see that more than 50 solar PV projects were also allocated in the latest contract for difference round at a total capacity of around 1.9 gigawatts. So that's good. Okay, so there is there is some good news in there, depending on um, what technology you are, you're, you're representing. Um, so, so where where does this leave the UK, Pippa, with with regard to its renewable energy targets? So, there's some really, really kind of quite quite punchy targets for offshore wind, aren't there? Mm. Yeah. So, in April 2022, the government set a target of delivering up to 50 gigawatts of new offshore wind by 2030, which yeah is a pretty ambitious target. And the UK currently has just 13.7 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity in operation. This is according to Renewables UK. So, yeah, we clearly do have a very long way to go, which I guess is why, you know, all of this all of this news is pretty concerning to kind of opposition and, and stakeholders. Moving on now to levelling up on regeneration bill, which is nearing the end of its passage through Parliament. It's currently in the House of Lords at the report stage. At this very late stage... The bill is still being amended, most notably to scrap neutrality rules. We're not, you might be relieved to hear, that actually going to talk about neutrality this week, other than to say that you really need to check out injureport.com to read the latest on what Natural England insiders feel about what has played out recently. And slight spoiler here, they're not very happy, you may be surprised to hear. In any case, further amendments have been made to the bill. Some are more likely than others to survive when the bill returns to the Commons later. So let's start off with local nature recovery strategies. Shosha, can you tell us a bit about what they are and what the amendments um, are going to do? So these LNRS, catchy, uh, were set out as a key measure in the Environment Act to drive more focused action to help nature and support the government's biodiversity net game plan. Each strategy is supposed to be specific to the area, but must contain a local habitat map and a written statement of biodiversity priorities. Um, It must be consulted on before it's published and set out by local authorities working closely with Um, groups like Natural England. In the wording of the Environment Act, however, there was no legal requirement for public authorities to actually use these plans, but it just said they had to have regard for them, an issue which campaigners raised at the time. This is where we get to these levelling up bill amendments from last week. So a number of amendments were agreed to strengthen this requirement, which means that local authorities will now have a specific legal duty to take account of LNRS when making local development plans. So that's local plans, minerals and waste plans, supplementary plans and neighbourhood plans. And they must all, well, the wording is they must take account of LNRS. I think some groups might have wanted even stronger wording than that, but it's a compromise that was made by peers. Thanks, Joshua. Um, 
Another amendment was that um, peers also succeeded in placing a new duty on national and local government to have special regard, in quotes, to climate change, mitigation and adaptation when drawing up planning policies. The government had opposed the amendment, but it was passed by 182 votes to 172. To me, this sounds like quite a sensible thing to be doing, but the government has opposed it. Why is that, Pippa? So Deputy Leader of the House of Lords, Earl Howe, said that the amendment would be unnecessarily disruptive um, because he, he basically said that while he agreed with the intention of the amendment, the problem is that, is that it would likely um, trigger a slew of litigation of, in these areas, which he said would could in turn hinder the action that we need to get plans in place to safeguard the environment that we all wish to protect. Okay. Interesting. Well, we'll see what happens when it goes back to the commons. I think probably because it's an opposition amendment, it might not um, have much chance of surviving, but it does It does sound like quite a good idea to me. Okay, so it's nearly time to move on to this week's deep dive section. But before we do that, um, shall we have some moments of the week? Um, Shosha, do you want to uh, share yours first? Of course. My story is about how what's described as the UK's largest fly, the hornet rubber fly, um, has been reportedly been spotted in Wales for the first time in 16 years. More specifically, it's been spotted in the SSSI Ceredigion, um, where it was last spotted two decades ago, so even longer since the most recent sighting. It looks like a hornet, but doesn't sting people. And apparently its favourite food is dung beetles, but it will also eat bees and grasshoppers. Um, they are a priority species under the Biodiversity Action Plan, um, but the reason they became so rare is because they're losing their habitat to agriculture and development. And they're particularly vulnerable to these chemicals given to cows and horses to stop them from getting parasites because they they lay their eggs in the, the dung of these animals. And so the chemicals that pass through them um, can deform and kill their offspring. And that's according to Natural Resources Wales. Wow. I thought it was quite sad, yeah. but... Yeah, they look like hornets, so... Uplifting and sad at the same time. Mm. <laughs> um, Pippa, have you got anything to uh, yeah. complete with that? Mine's a bit of a strange one, but I went down a bit of a rabbit hole um, and ended up finding out that recently it was the Bog Snorkeling Championships in Wales. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it, I honestly had never heard this was a thing, and I'm not sure I would want to snorkel in a bog. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you Google it, there's a prize for the best dressed bog snorkeler, and I would encourage all listeners to yeah have a quick Google and see who you think should be the winner. <laughs> Excellent. Wow. My, my, my one is probably not quite as exciting as either of those two. Um, so my, mine's a, um, there's apparently been a massive influx of a, 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 a particular type of jellyfish that's rarely seen in UK waters to to being spotted off the coast of Cornwall. So this thing is called a crystal jelly. Yes, I saw loads of them when I was down there last week. Really? I was just swimming along and I got really scared that they were going to sting me because I was just surrounded by them. But I I don't know, I didn't get stung. Yeah, we said the the what the wildlife truff down there say, although they have stinging cells, they're, they're not powerful enough to harm humans. But... Um, <laughs> But what what I thought was quite interesting is that they say that there is kind of either boom or bust. So you either get you either get loads of them or you get none of them. Um, mm. So obviously got loads of them. My my um one of my kids absolutely loves jellyfish. So he would have been um showing this when I get home. Spent <laughs> on holiday in Wales this summer. He um spent all his time kind of picking up jellyfish and rescuing them and putting Aww. them back in the sea. Oh, they were probably dead when he did yeah. that. <laughs> I saw the opposite. I saw two kids sort of taking the jellyfish out of the sea and putting them all on a rock in this 
sort of macabre display. Um, but I'm just hoping that at that point they were all, you know, they were all quite shredded, to be honest. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, on, on that happy note, that um, brings us to the end of this week's Big Green News section. Thank you to Pippa and Shosha. Now it's time for this episode's deep dive. This week, I caught up with NG Europe's Simon Pickstone for a special Knowing Me, Knowing EU conversation on species reintroductions. We've talked a lot about species reintroductions on the Eco Chamber podcast, beavers, water voles, pine martins and the like. I think it's fair to say there's growing interest here in the UK in rewilding, at least on this podcast, and also a fair bit of argument about the idea too. But that pales in comparison with Europe, where the beasts are sometimes bigger, not quite as cuddly, and the political debate is considerably noisier. Over the next few minutes, we're going to attempt to bring you up to speed with what's happening with species reintroductions in Europe. We'll be talking wolves, bears and a dead donkey, as well as unpicking wild claims that a new nature law will wipe Santa Claus City off the map. So why are we talking about this now? Well, it's pretty topical. This week, the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, put out a statement. She said, The concentration of wolf packs in some European regions has become a real danger for livestock, and potentially also for humans. I urge local and national authorities to take action where necessary. Indeed, current EU legislation already enables them to do so. So what's going on, Simon? Is, is von der Leyen saying anything new there? In some ways, no. This kind of stretches back to uh, an a unfortunate turn of events last year involving a wolf called GW950M, which has become maybe the most famous wolf in Europe uh, over the past few months because it's responsible for a dozen attacks in Germany, including one that killed Ursula von der Leyen's own pet pony, favourite pony called Dolly. Dolly was in a heavily fortified compound of some kind near Ursula von der Leyen's um, house in Germany and was unfortunately attacked and killed by this wolf. The wolf GW950M now has a kill order out against it because it's been recognised as a, a menace but it's apparently still at large. Uh, the, the, at least the last I've heard, there doesn't seem to be any confirmation that it's been that it's been killed. This has led people to speculate that um, the European Commission's latest intervention on the wolf debate is motivated by von der Leyen's personal revenge. Um, I'm not willing to in, indulge in such speculation myself, um, but people people in the media are having a lot yeah. of fun with this. Uh, <laughs> um, the 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 story behind von der Leyen's statement is that the commission is essentially doing a data gathering exercise here, so they're inviting stakeholders um, to provide more information on the conservation status of wolves across Europe, uh, threats to livestock, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in order to build up more of a picture of what's going on and potentially propose loosening protections for wolves under EU legislation. So that's principally the Habitats Directive. Okay, so um, before we talk a bit more about um, what might happen in terms of the the, the changes to rules, um, just just a bit more background on what's going on in Germany with wolves, which is kind of quite quite interesting. So so I think just as um, as a bit of context, the the last wolf pack in Germany is thought to have died out at around eighteen fifty the, the, when they were they were hunted to extinction. Um, but recently, we've seen a quite a rapid growth in numbers. So, so there were the, the first wild wolves were born again in Germany in two thousand, and and in the past decade, the number of wolves increased by more than more than sixfold. So now now Germany is home to as many as 
161 packs or about 1300 wolves so that sounds sounds good as a as a conservation success story but but um that that rise has also been accompanied by by a big increase in the number of livestock deaths so across germany we had we had more than 4000 farm animals killed by wolves in 2022 um and that included 30 horses and, and four llamas and that number was up 30% on the year before so so that that kind of rise i think has mean that there's there's kind of growing tensions and farmers are being pitted against conservationists and there's also kind of been been reports of people taking matters into their own hands so you got you got um on the one side hunting shelters have been burned down on the other side you have wolves that have been illegally shot and dismembered so it's got quite quite heated and i suppose it's also kind of getting more heated in in brussels where where there are some calls now to ease nature protection rules to allow for selective culling of of large predators yeah so this has been rumbling on for a bit now um it's worth noting first of all that selective culling is allowed under the habitats directive so there's there's ways that as in the case of the wolf that killed von der Leyen's pony there are ways that eu authorities so european european authorities can issue licenses to hunt particularly troublesome wolves or to do other me- measures such as translocating them um that's that's already a possibility and von der Leyen's statement actually makes that quite clear there was a European Parliament resolution in November 2022 um, calling on the EU to consider re- removing some of the protections for wolves uh, under the Habitats Directive. That's non-binding. That was the European Parliament simply making a statement. And it's worth noting that EU governments at that time were not in favour of doing so. Um, there had been a conversation around it among member states because Switzerland had proposed um loosening the burn convention which is a non-eu text signed by european countries including the uk and switzerland um the swiss proposal didn't go through because the eu opposed it as a block and the eu opposed it because eu member states in the majority weren't in favor of doing so for wolves it's worth noting as well that the european commission um has so far been quite reluctant to revisit this um or at least not until new data is available. And this explains the data collection exercise that it's now undertaking. So in January, it issued a response to the European Parliament resolution in which it basically set out all of the measures currently available, both to try and smooth coexistence between humans and wolves. And there's loads of measures you can take. And it goes into some detail about, you know, shepherding techniques, using dogs, using lights, using um, portable electric fences, compensation schemes, which are run by national states, but which national governments, but which can be um, um, funded through EU agricultural subsidies and rural development subsidies. It's also worth noting that member states since 2022 don't appear to have radically changed their position on this. So I saw a little bit of um, slightly dramatic news coverage of von der Leyen's statement in the uh, national press yesterday and today. The commission can't just make something happen like this. It would have to, it would have to get the backing of both MEPs and member states. And in a agriculture minister meeting in um, before the summer break in June, it was clear there wasn't a majority of member states that would be in favour so far of revisiting um, wolves protection status, at least without, um, in the absence of fresh data showing that, you know, population trends are um, so positive as to merit a EU-wide reduction in their protection. 
I, it just so happens that yesterday I was talking to um, Bulgaria's Environment Minister, Julian Popov, and Bulgaria is one of the member states that actually isn't in favour of reducing protection measures up for the time being. Um, and I asked him what he thought about von der Leyen's comments. He was like pretty um, diplomatic, but um, it's clear he would be very cautious about opening that up without really firm evidence to support it. Because actually wolves never died out in Bulgaria offers some lessons that other European countries could learn from when it comes to shepherding techniques, for instance, or um, cohabitation more generally. And Popov actually stressed, you know, the potential benefits as well, like for tourism, um, um, which becoming a a key thing in, in Bulgaria, which has really got some of the, you know, Europe's most biodiverse areas and it's it's home not just to wolves but to bears in huge number and another another keystone species that are missing from elsewhere in Europe. So we we have um EU elections coming up next year and there have been some signs I guess that there are particular groupings in, in, in the parliament who might seek to make political capital out of these these kind of issues and we saw a bit of that with the um nature restoration law earlier in the year where where kind of everything 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 kicked off and um there were there were some fairly narrow narrow votes um and also there was a fairly bizarre um twitter thing where where it was it was linked to the destruction of santa claus city um can you can you explain a bit about well maybe the nature restoration law context first and then definitely want to hear about santa claus City. (laughs) yeah okay so the nature restoration law was a proposal put forward by the european commission which would involve improving um setting basically a timeline by which member states need to achieve certain conservation goals and that relates to the um good status of both protected habitats um and protected species so those are habitats and species that fall under the habitats directive but also some um non-protected habitats so things like areas of wetland that aren't designated protected sites but which are seen as valuable um targets around um forest restoration and re-wetting former peatlands former wetlands and stuff like that so that was the european commission's proposal very much tailored around basically supplementing the habitats birds and habitats directives and other pieces of uh, nature protection law for whatever reason the center-right party the epp decided this was going to be the green eu policy uh, it would oppose most vociferously and made a huge political deal out of it um the head of the epp in the european parliament manfred weber who bear in mind is technically a member of the same party as ursula von der leyen um took a political gamble um that the epp would be able to actually reject the proposal altogether and they came quite close to doing so in a nail-biting vote before the summer it didn't actually succeed, but um, it, it unleashed quite a lot of drama um, in Brussels, which um, can be quite consensus-driven, um, generally speaking. So this was this was really something quite quite different from a from a reporting perspective because really emotions were running super high. Yeah, it was only running super high on on Twitter as well. Oh, it, it was it was absolutely thing. amazing. The Santa Claus City thing, if I recall relates to a post or a series of posts that the EPP put out in which they suggested 
through some kind they've done some kind of calculation and suggested that eu um tree forest restoration targets in the nature restoration law would result in the home of father christmas ostensibly rovaniemi in finland in lapland would um no longer exist and would instead be covered by trees um and they depicted franz timmermans who's the outgoing head of the european commission's um general green agenda they cast him as being a kind of scrooge like figure with a wearing a kind of scrooge cap um and cruelly evicting santa from his igloo this is kind of baffling because i i and i think a lot of other people have generally considered franz timmermans to be more santa than scrooge just just um, in appearance, in appearance yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the the thing kind of hard to judge, but it, it got a lot of mockery online. But I, I don't know whether that was part of the EPP's plan or not, really. Um, but that's the kind of stuff which I think until recently you haven't really seen so much of in Brussels. It's sort of like um, quite vitriolic, um, personalised attacks on on people like that. It seemed like a new uh, a, a new step. So I, I guess importantly, my, my my kids who I'm sure are listening to this podcast and want to know is 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 Santa likely to be bringing them gifts at Christmas now, or is that? <laughs> I mean, so the, the European Parliament anyway, find the the text that they the negotiating position that I've approved anyway is a severely weakened version of the European Commission's proposal. They are, they basically endorsed the they endorsed the negotiating position of the member states um but then weakened that further and negotiations are now starting they're getting underway to agree on the final version of that text but i think it's fair to say that there's there's no chance of uh large swathes of europe being um aforested um or disappearing under bog or whatever um it does it certainly is illustrative of the fact that uh conservation is becoming a, a pretty key part of the right, the centre right, and far right electoral strategy. And we're, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot more of this. I was speaking to uh, someone from WWF Austria this morning who relayed to me that in Austria as well, like wolves have become a big political thing and were in the large last regional elections in Austria, and he expects that to. He, it, it, he suggested that the von der Leyen comments from yesterday took people by surprise a little bit because um they weren't expecting um so they were expecting some of this backlash but potentially closer to the elections next year which is happening in june i mean let's see it could all backfire horribly on the epp um if uh, it turns out voters actually quite like nature nature restoration um but it's pretty hard to say at this point it does it does seem like a fairly strange thing to take aim at but then what to, what do we know at least um it sounds like Christmas is going to be safe for another year at least. So, so that's the that's the um, politics of it, which I think probably to, to people who aren't familiar with the um, EU will sound quite um, quite surprising potentially. Um, but I, I guess a good thing to do now would be maybe just to finish off by by talking a little bit about whether there are are kind of lessons for the for the UK in all of this. And and what one thing I suppose is that there is a bit of discussion at the moment in the UK around whether whether bigger beasts or slightly bigger beasts like lynx could be brought back. Wolves very occasionally, I suppose, get mentioned in the UK context, but but I suppose when what we see in Europe is when you have bigger predators like that reintroduced or, or more of them in number, that the, there are 
there need to be kind of accompanying coexistence measures or compensation schemes. Could you talk a little bit about what what um what kind of things we're seeing in that context? Yeah. Um I so I spoke to um someone at Rewilding Europe, Sophie Mossa, who is really heavily involved in um a, there's ten big projects overseen by Rewilding Europe. Um they, they they've got a fair few in the Mediterranean basin, but elsewhere in Europe as well. Um and I asked her for her opinions on the kind of what what helps with the success of rewilding projects. And I think first and foremost, it's about like community consent, basically. You don't want to be intervening in a landscape um, in ways that local people don't like. Um, one of the things that she really stressed is that the, the, the picture in mainland Europe is a little different because the large carnivores, particularly wolves, but bears to a certain extent as well and lynx, um, can walk they can just they can move into new territories and that's largely what we've seen happen in europe there have been there have been targeted programs where they've trans translocated lynx and bears for instance um but often this is to close gaps um between existing populations of those animals where you have existing populations you, you're gonna have more community understanding about pros and cons of living with large large predators um in some ways that's a little easier and slightly different from in the UK where any any new animal has to be purposefully introduced. Um, and I think you're always going to see a bit more resistance to that because the animals can't just get there themselves. So I think that's a particular difficulty the UK is going to face is if you do decide you want to introduce lynx, um, the lynx can't just walk here. They have to be, they have to be transported by humans. That's going to raise all kinds of um, difficult questions around like community engagement and um, um, really, really making the case for doing that. Like, what 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 benefits would it bring for the environment? What benefits would that bring for local communities, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So, um, I think Rewilding Europe are really keen to stress like the the community based nature of their work. I think another of the key differences is in um, some parts of Europe, by no means all parts of Europe, but particularly areas of the Mediterranean um, and Eastern Europe, so in Bulgaria, for instance, you've got um, rural depopulation happening and you have land abandonment happening. And that creates opportunities for um, species reintroductions projects. Often and um, generally, actually, the species being reintroduced aren't going to be large predators. They could be lynx, for instance, but people aren't generally transporting wolves as so i understand it aren't generally transporting wolves um wolves wolves can make their own way to places um but you can and rewilding europe is reintroducing herbivores into these areas and part of the reason for doing that is that um in certain areas prone to fires um herbivores say they could be semi-domesticated like uh, semi-wild horses for instance can clear a lot of the biomass that's built up since humans have abandoned the land um, and 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 create kind of mosaic habitats that are more resilient and less likely to catch on fire in disastrous ways, um, like we've seen in Portugal, particularly in 2017. Those those kinds of opportunities for rewilding, I think, are less apparent in the UK because I don't think we necessarily have the same issues of rural depopulation and land abandonment. Um, so I think any landscape scale rewilding project is going to have to really take account of the UK, the specific UK national context. And I think, I think, yeah, that's, that's definitely going to ch pose challenges. You can just see from how difficult it is in the EU, even in countries that have long lived uh, alongside the wolf, say in Romania, 
where you know wolves wolves never went extinct and um there's a big political backlash to protections against wolves and it was Romania who actually issued a paper in June um suggesting that the, the EU should reconsider protections for wolves and I, I mean it's one thing for Romania because I think they have a relatively large population of wolves but conservationists will stress that at the EU level the the, the status of wolves is still precarious and and a majority of cross-border wolf packs are vulnerable still and and as i think simon you were saying offline earlier you're, you're far more likely to be killed by a cow than a, than a wolf in the I, I mean i mean you could you could list i mean nearly anything that you're more likely to be killed by i mean dogs as well the the the, th- the thing i think that changes the conversation slightly of course in the uk is like if you, if this risk doesn't exist currently like um then the case to be made for introducing um predators becomes much harder i think the the other thing to bear in mind is um predator attacks on livestock sheep particularly are growing but it still represents a fraction of um, sheep mortality incidents um on a yearly basis i think calculated about 0.06 percent of sheep a year killed in wolf attacks like we are going to see that number rise if if wolves increase in number but the European Commission, in its initial response to the European Parliament resolution in January, cited evidence suggesting that, say, in Ireland, where there are no wolf attacks, because um, there's no wolves, <laughs> um, sheep mortality can be anywhere from 6 to 25% a year if, if the sheep are grazed outdoors all year round. So I think it is a sensitive issue um, and one that's got to be handled carefully, definitely. But you shouldn't really be afraid of the big bad wolf. I mean, certainly as far as Attacks on humans go no. I think I think that really was one of the things that conservationists are upset about was von der Leyen's comments because there's almost no, I mean there's really vanishingly few incidents of that happening in Europe. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Simon. That's really interesting, and I've I've definitely learned learned a lot looking at this topic, and and hopefully some some of um, people listening would have, have picked up something too that's useful. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Simon, Pippa, and Shosha. If you'd like to find out more about any of the issues we've been discussing this week, please head over to endreport.com or endeurope.com for wolf-related content and fill your boots. Until next time, goodbye.